Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Janine Krippner. Janine Krippner is a physical volcanologist from New Zealand. After earning her PhD in 2017, Krippner worked as a contract scientist for the Smithsonian Institution's Global Volcanologism Program and served as the editor of the journal Volcanica. She is the host of the popular Volcanics podcast and regularly tweets about volcano eruptions in real time. You can follow her on Twitter at Janine Krippner. Let's hear what she has to say about the Tungawai train disaster. Hi, Janine. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. It's always fun to talk about these volcanic topics with new people. Well, and we have some very basic questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> just to get an understanding of how volcanoes work, something we just still don't understand. How do volcanoes work? Oh my gosh, that sounds like a simple question, but that is such a complicated question you just <laughs> asked me. <laughs> but if we want to really break it down into something we can all relate to. Yes, um, like five-year-olds. Yeah, absolutely. Five-year-olds ask even harder questions. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Um, so if you think of a bottle of beer or Coke or champagne, whatever your preference is, we know that before we open the bottle, there's a lot of gas in there, but we can't see it, right? We don't see that gas until we take the top off or if we shake it, give it to someone else and take the top off. Well, magma is similar. It has a lot of gas in it, 
but you don't see the gas until it's closer to the surface because then we are reducing the pressure. When you're taking the bottle, lit off a bottle of Coke or beer, you're reducing the pressure, the gas comes out of the liquid. Similar thing happens with magma. Once you have it at the surface or near the surface, you have gas that's starting to come out. Now this gas builds pressure because everything's under the surface of the earth, so it's all pressurized down there. If you get it high enough and you have certain types of lava magma under the surface, it's lava once it's erupted, you can get big explosive eruptions. We see these beautiful big ash plumes, which are made of pulverized rock and glass and crystals, or these more runny lava flows like we see at Hawaii. So it's kind of like a really complicated bottle of beer, I guess. <laughs> wow, that that actually helped. Um, so what is an uh, an what is an overview of the volcanic action in New Zealand, and how does it compare to the rest of the volcanic action around the globe? Yeah, we actually got a lot of volcanoes in New Zealand. Our biggest city, Auckland, is built on a volcanic field, as a lot of other cities and towns around the world are. We have our central volcanoes, Ruapehu, um, Tongariro, and Mount Narahoi, which people might recognize from Lord of the Rings as Mount Doom, and that's one of the ones I'm currently working on. Yes. Wow. Um, <laughs> then we have Fakari or White Island, which jumped into the news a few years ago when we had a deadly eruption there. And we have our big topo, which is um, filled with a lake. It's kind of like our version of Yellowstone. It's our what some people like to call super volcano. And we have offshore volcanoes as well as few as a, um, as well as a few other volcanoes. So we have a lot of volcanoes in New Zealand, just like you do in the United States. And I'm assuming they're all active at the moment. Uh, not all of them, but there's definitely varying degrees of how active they are depending on what's happening under the surface. The currently erupting one is White Island or Fakati. Um, but right now, that's the only one that's actively erupting, unless you count ones under the ocean that's going up north of New Zealand, which are technically in our territory. There might be some there as well. So could you talk to us specifically about Mount Rupe Ru Ruapehu? That was good. <laughs> Ruapehu. <yeah>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is its history as a volcano and what were its major eruptions before this train disaster in 1953? So Ruapehu is a really big volcanic complex that has multiple craters that have erupted through time. So it's experienced a lot of different eruption styles. We have big ash eruptions, um, similar to what we saw at Mount St. Helens in 1980. A lot of people might remember that or have seen images and photos of that. We have small eruptions that have produced thick lava flows. We've had parts of the mountain collapse, like we also saw at Mount St. Helens in 1980. And then we have a lot smaller eruptions as well. So there's this huge range of eruption styles that occur at this volcano. And something that can happen whether or not the volcano is erupting are these lahars. Um, I have to say that with American accent because New Zealanders say lahar and you can't understand what I'm saying. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so what is a lahar and how does it work? Lahars are pretty terrifying things, really. They are these basically debris flows, so a flood, a flow of debris, so water, rock, anything that it picks up in its path. So if you imagine a flood coming down a volcano, and they can go all the way to the ocean depending on where they are. So these things can go for hundreds of kilometers down river valleys. Um, they can be the consistency of like really watery if they have a lot of water in them 
to wet concrete. If they've picked up a lot of um, rock and ash and debris, they can carry basically chunks of forest with them as well. They can carry buildings, trucks, anything that they pick up along the way. So these can be really um, high floods that are coming down river channels. They've taken out entire towns in the past. They're extremely fast moving. They can rise the water level at any given point in the in a river channel very, very quickly. They can take out bridges, roads, very, very hazardous. And they because they travel so far from the volcano, they can impact huge areas as well. Wow. So uh, could you explain to us what happened after the, the 1945 eruption? Um, we had a hard time understanding how water could collect on Mount Ruapehu's crater. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the mechanics at play here? Yeah, so we have these things called crater lakes. That's essentially you have a volcanic crater, which is just a big hole in the ground, right? And so you can have water collecting from snowmelt, if it's a snow-covered or glaciated volcano, rainwater. You can also have water coming up through the volcano with a geothermal or hydrothermal system. So if you have this big bowl, essentially, of rock layers, whether they're thick lava flows, solid lava flows, or they're made up of much smaller rock bits and larger rock chunks. So you have this basically... In a lot of cases, parts of these are unstable, so partly unstable bowl of water. And this is a huge bowl of water. Now, Ruapehu's crater lake is sitting at the top of the volcano, and one of the rims of that is made up of different bits of rock that have erupted during these eruptions, so we call this a, a dam. It's holding that water back. Now, if you think uh-huh. of water, water is actually really, really heavy. If you've picked up a, a jug of milk or something, you know how heavy water is. So if you imagine a huge crater full of water, that is a huge amount of pressure on the walls of that. So if you have a narrow-ish kind of dam that's holding that water back, the risk is that part of that dam is going to collapse. And that's what happened in 1953 that resulted in the Tangiwai disaster. So had there been other lahars uh, that had come down the the, the volcano before 1953? Yeah, yeah. Rupayu has had lahars on average every 50 or so years. In fact, we've had more recent lahars. We had two in 2007. We've had some in 1995 when we had an eruption there too. And they don't necessarily have to be associated with an eruption. So as we know, Tangiwai, there was no eruption and eruptive activity at all associated with that. But the crater had been filling up with water since the previous eruption there had been notice. Um, it had been noticed that year that the volcano, the sorry, the lake water was increasing, but it didn't have an outlet. There wasn't a way for that water to go back down again. So, with this increasing volume of huge volume of water, you'd have pressure building up on this basically pile of loose rock and snow and ice that's holding a lot of it back. So we we had read that the year uh, or 1945 eruption. After that, the geologists had warned officials about a, a potential overflow from the volcano's crater. Um, but those warnings were, of course, not heeded. Why, why were they alarmed at that time? Yeah, so the, the term itself actually comes from Indonesia. It's an Indonesian word. So volcanologists and geologists have been aware of Lahars for a while. 
And they didn't really become this well-known thing until events like Tangiwai, um, like Mount St. Helens in 1980. Um, Pinatubo produced a lot of lahars after a massive eruption in 1991. So while it was known that these things could happen, and you don't even have to be a volcanologist. If you look at a huge body of water perched up on a volcano, any kind of engineering type person is going to look at that and say, well, that might come down. Water likes to go downhill. So the problem with that afterwards is okay, how do you how do you understand the risk in a way that you can convey it to people who need to make decisions? And then what do you do about it? So now we know so much more about Lahars than we did than they did back then. So the amount of information we have is just infinitely better. So could you walk us through the events that happened on December twenty fourth, nineteen fifty three that led to the disaster? Yeah, so the disaster was building up long before Christmas Eve in 1953. We had um, this unstable side of this crater lake on Ruapehu. There was no activity that day. As I mentioned, you do not need activity to produce these very dangerous events. But the crater lake water had been increasing, putting more pressure on that dam. So it finally let go that night. And then within... Not very long at all, it ended up at this Tangiwai Bridge, which is a rail bridge where our main trunk line, our main train rail goes. So there's a passenger train coming down the Lahar because it has so much water. It's very powerful. It's got a lot of rock and debris in with it as well. Loosens the, weakens the bridge. Train comes over it a few minutes later. Bridge collapses. Train goes into the river valley. Um, all wild water is still going down there. So uh, absolutely horrendous, horrendous event. How long would it have taken for the Lahar to settle after the uh, the bridge collapse or after after it starts coming down the mountain, actually? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not actually sure what it, how long it took to settle that day. Um, okay. The problem with lahars is you can often have multiple waves of them happening as well. So if you have like a landslide or this this cub through an ice tunnel through the dam, if you have larger chunks of collapses, you can have multiple waves too. So while these people were doing a rescue mission shortly after it, any moment there could have been another wave that came down. So it's very brave for people who dove in to rescue passengers. Wow, that's terrifying. It really is. Is Mount Ruapehu still active. It, yes. it, can this sort of thing happen again? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, a very similar event happened in March 2007. We actually had two lahars in 2007. The first one in March was produced in a very mm-hmm. similar fashion, and it was forecast by volcanologists. So they actually had a tripwire set up um, so they could see exactly when this happened. They were monitoring the dam to see when it was going to break. They had a warning plan in place. By then, after Tangiwai, the bridges had been raised and fortified. There's been a lot of work that's been done since 1953 to make sure that the areas downstream are prepared and that people are safe. We had a second event in September 2007 where an explosion actually ejected a huge amount of crater lake water. And we had a second lahar that year from an entirely different reason. So we've actually had a lot of um, different lahars at different volcanoes from different triggering mechanisms too. Some are with eruptions. This eruption had no warning either. And others are like Tangiwai where if you know what you're looking at and looking for, you can see them coming and do something to keep people safe. And and what are this what are these warning systems and how do they work? 
Yes, that's a really good question. There's a, there are different warning systems around. Um, there's a really good warning system set up on Mount Hood in the United States as well. So part of this is actual visual um, monitoring, so people going and checking out what the failure mechanism might be. So in some cases, it is um, unstable areas of rock that trigger a landslide of snow and ice, and that can trigger a lahar. It doesn't have to be a body of standing water like this. But in this case, they knew the area that was um, weakened so they could go up and have a look at it and actually look at the mechanical properties of this area. Um, they set up a webcam so they could actually check in on, on um, the Crater Lake and the dam. They had a trip wire across which went off and set off the alarm. They had geophones measuring the movements um, associated with this huge amount of water moving over the land. And, of course, this then causes other um, uh, land erosion as well. So it's picking up a lot. It's making a lot of vibrations. So there are different ways to monitor lahas depending on how you are getting one occurring in the first place. Um, so having a where you know exactly where the water is, you know exactly which area might fail, like in this case, it makes it a little easier. And people had been working on it and studying, and there was so much work done. But then you could have um, other ways as well, like um, in Almero, Nevada del Ruiz volcano in 1985, there was an eruption which produced hot material that landed on the glaciers. This produced a lahar by melting very rapidly snow and ice. And it, this lahar ended up killing around 23,000 people. What? So knowing there are, there are these different ways you can even produce a lahar to begin with. So they're incredibly complicated and really scary events. Now, I apologize because this is a very stupid question, but I do need to ask based on a conversation we had on the topic, but is it possible to develop a gutter system to prevent lahars? Is there it's some kind of drainage? not a stupid drainage? <laughs> um, Okay. There, there are actually cases of, so there's several ways of doing this, and there are cases of this. There's a volcano in Indonesia where they've had really devastating lahars. The name, the volcano, specific volcano is escaping me right now, but they actually drilled a tunnel through the crater wall so that they're draining the crater lake so it doesn't actually... Um, get enough water inside of it to release to produce a massive lahar. And they've actually had to, since they had another lahar, after they did this, they've made it even lower. Um, then if you look at volcanoes like in Japan, they have, um, they they kind of, they dig in terrace systems, which you have to keep empty of debris so that it slows down these lahars and it's collecting sediment as well. So there are different engineering things you can do. But when you have Ruapehu, you have the crater lake, that's one way to make a lahar. So if you have a volcano where there's a known way to make a lahar, like you have the one in Indonesia isn't covered in snow and ice. So you have this crater lake, that is the primary way of getting a lahar. You can also have rainfall, remobilizing all the loose rock and debris that naturally builds up on a volcano. But you have a primary way and you can have something you can do about it. On Ruapehu, you have like Nevada de Ruiz, hot material landing on the glaciers that can um, cause a lahar, heavy rainfall. After you've had an eruption, oh. you have the crater lake. You then have you know, also explosions and eruptions. So it's only really doing one thing instead of looking at the whole picture and having the broader area be more prepared. I see. There, uh, What I'm understanding is that there's many ways to make a lahar. Yes, and they all <laughs> suck. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for anyone living downstream or any snow fields on the volcanoes, like we have on Rope as well. 
So speaking of these people, what would one, what should one do if they find themselves number one near a volcano that is erupting and number two near a lahar? That is such a good question. If you are in a valley, go uphill. Like if you're in a, I don't mean go uphill towards the volcano, get out of the valley as fast as possible. We actually have, um, there's hiking trails around Ruapehu. And if you go in one of these valleys, there are signs saying, do not linger in this valley, get out as fast as you can. If you feel or hear any rumbling or noises, get out immediately, go uphill because these lahars are traveling down a river channel, right? So if you're at the top of that channel, if you're on the ridge or on the hill, You've just made yourself a heck of a lot safer. What do you do during an eruption? It depends on what kind of eruption it is. Um, some mm. really, really violent styles of eruptions, you need to be evacuated to begin with because some styles, there's no way you can survive them. Um, we saw, we've saw, we seen a few lava flows recently where you can outwalk the lava flow or at least evacuate ahead of time. And it's complicated. Every good answer around volcanoes <laughs> Starts with it's complicated, <laughs> but basically, if you're visiting a volcano, know who the local authorities are because if something happens, they will be giving out instructions. So the volcano observatory and local civil defense authorities will be giving out information specific to that volcano because they're all different and the specific eruption style. So basic, know where to go for information if you need it in a rush. Know what that volcano can do. Usually, these places have a website. And stay safe and have fun. They're amazing places. Do you do you think we should be developing towns near volcanoes or do we just not have a choice? It's really tough because you have countries like Indonesia where it's hard to throw a rock and not right. hit a volcano, right? Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of cities and areas already around volcanoes. And then if you look at, for example, again, Indonesia, a lot of these really heavily dense volcanic areas are also in areas of earthquakes and potentially tsunamis and landslides and extreme weather. So just avoiding the hazard quite often isn't possible. We can do things like raise bridges um, and divert roads and um, things, engineering, things like that. But there have been times where there's been an attempt to move a town and as we can all understand, if we think with our compassionate <laughs> hearts, it's very hard to just get up and leave your home. Yes. So at the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or a thing, it can be a concept that is to blame for the Tungi Wai train disaster, who or what would that be? Oh, I think since this was back in 1953, I would say the lack of knowledge. There was just, there's just so much more knowledge now. There's so much better technology now too. So that would be my secondary. We, you know, there are so many different ways we can watch volcanoes now that weren't in place then, but really the knowledge, the knowledge of what could happen and how it could happen and the exact speeds it could get to different places and exactly what the impacts are was a lot of that was just missing at the time. Janine, thank you so much for talking to us today and helping us understand um, how volcanoes work and the, you know, the diff different uh, parts of this terrible disaster. Thank you so much for having me. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. What a learning session we just had, guys. Oh, yeah. That was Lots. really fun for me. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when she started talking about a champagne bottle as a volcano, um, I just... You could really relate to that. Yeah. We got the alcoholic reference. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like New, New Year's Eve all over again, right? Yeah. But like, no, that was... What a 
great visual. It like mm-hmm. maybe I'm maybe I'm a visual learner, guys, because that really did it for me. Um, yep, me too. She nailed it. Um, and you know, she also was illuminating about a lot, a lots of stuff. And the big biggest takeaway I had was uh, be afraid, be very afraid. Mm-hmm. I never had thought that I needed to fear lahars. In fact, I didn't even have that word in my vocabulary. Right. I didn't have that uh, uh, potential. Um, disaster, anxiety. anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was not on my radar. Skipped right to the top of the alarm <laughs> to the alarm right. list, huh? Lahar, yeah, so I agree. Lahar is a, word a new notion like that. No, I mean, th- there's just so many ways to get caught in a lahar, apparently, and you don't know when they're coming, except for you know some of these volcanoes, which she was explaining that um, have these warning systems. Um, you know webcams I, I was struck by the webcams just like a little uh camera that's mm-hmm. like oh here it goes someone's just watching this feed all day yeah <laughs> i know how easy <laughs> to get distracted and miss the lahar that's terrible i know there's got to be a better way <laughs> but at least there's that no no i mean the, i mean she explained a bunch of of, right. of ways that they're tracking it um but that one of course was like the the one i'm like ah webcams i know those <laughs> Yeah, I also like that she didn't. Uh, your your uh, what you called the dumb question was the the one about the the gutters. The gutters. She didn't really scoff at. Actually, that seemed to be part of the you know, and that's what we were talking about, right? What is a river? It's like a gutter, right? Nature's like, gutters, as Billy said. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we were we had the right instincts. We didn't have the right vocabulary or way of uh of 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 you know, making that work for a volcano. Mm -hmm. Um, But give us a long weekend. We could probably figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to call Billy and apologize. Be like, Hey man, uh, turns out gutters uh, are, are potentially a lahar, you know, uh, could, could save you from a lahar. They could solve that problem. For sure. Um, So what do we think? I mean, she blamed the lack of knowledge, knowledge, which Mm -hmm. we were kind of, we circling around, around. Exactly. we talked about that you know this was a big learning kind of experience moment in terms of um engineering in terms of also um understanding what the dangers of, of being downstream of a lahar or potential lahar so i think that was spot on for me it's like yeah they just didn't know yeah they just didn't know now you know i mean it's interesting though that they didn't understand like the the full like c- capacity for these cars to like cause such extreme damage. However, we did discuss how the experts did address like issues, structural issues with the bridge from that previous Lahar, right? Right. So it's like, what what do you really zero in on? I feel like it seems like Lahars were kind of a new thing. Hmm. that they had not been tracking before or maybe didn't know the dangers fully. Uh, uh, and and it's understandable that, you know, the New Zealand authorities then came to the conclusion that no one was to blame, right? That this was just hmm. right. an accident. Um, so it, it, it makes sense. Sometimes it's better to be, it's always better to live now. That's what I always say. People are always like, if you time traveled, if you could pick any time to live, 
Um, when, when would that be, right? And for many reasons, uh, being a woman, uh, technology, mm-hmm. medicine, um, medicine, science. <laughs> You're just like, uh, maybe a week ago at tops. You're not going, I guess, honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase that. I'm going to say 2019 was the time. It was pre COVID. Mm. And we still had similar technology to what mm. we have right mm. now, right? Yeah. Um, but then you'd have to go through COVID again. Well, no, that's not how it works, isn't it? It's, it's just, oh, you're going for like a time travel vacation yeah. for a week? Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting okay. concept. I, though, you would, I guess the instinct along those lines is like the further in the future you can go, the safer you are. But who's to know how technology turns into a weapon in the future? And then yeah. maybe you don't. Maybe it's like we're in the golden age no. right now. I mean, we, we've discussed this before. We are peaking right now. Walk <laughs> around your life and say, I'm peaking. I'm peaking. Right. Well, I'm peaking. I mean, the, I mean, I've just to counter that, you know, technology <laughs> kind of is being used as a weapon right now. If you think about it, sure. I mean, like mm-hmm. the f- Facebook lack of regulations, like spread of misinformation, um, that all that stuff just driving society basically to insanity. Mm. And well, and think like how much worse that could get. Of logic. Yeah, it can get worse and it probably will. It, yeah, I you know, it totally could get worse. I mean, but anyway, as you were saying, yeah, I think going back anytime before, like, say, Band-Aids would probably be a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Band-Aids. I just mean, like, Band-Aids as, like, a synecdoche for, like, um, medicine. Oh, you know? right. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so we'll stick to now. Um, anyway, I, I, I think we should stay with our verdict uh, and just to remind our listeners, Clayton. Yes, the verdict that we landed on was we threw ignoring the experts in jail. Mm-hmm. We right. gave a big slap to engineering and engineers, which I guess kind of like harkens to the lack of knowledge at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then we gave a big clap to Cyril Ellis, Charles Parker, and Lance Redmond for their heroic efforts in saving people. Right. So... Do we feel like it, maybe it's not ignoring the experts? It's like not having experts. Mm. Like Janine would have killed it in 1953. Right. Right. If only they had Janine. Well, the ex- so the do we call them uh, the ignorance of our experts? Um, just a, I guess it's, but that it just boils down to a lack of knowledge. Yeah, they, I, would, I would defer to her sort of phrasing of it, which would be lack of knowledge and technology. Yeah. I think I, we're going to have to rephrase that then. I, I so I'm just going to call it lack of knowledge and technology. You're going to the alarmist jail. <laughs> I should be specific, right? <laughs> lack of knowledge and technology ab- about volcanoes and lahars. Now you're going to the alarmist jail. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I just want to give a shout out to our listeners from New Zealand because we, uh, right after the episode came out, we got two emails uh, from uh, just some our, our listeners over there who were like essentially saying, you mispronounced everything, but let me help you out here. And they literally, we got an email from Rory who said, hi, all love the show. It was interesting to hear one from my own country. Naturally, I thought you would love to have some uh, Maori 
uh, pronunciation feedback. That way, when you never actually need it in the future, you will have at least been harassed by a fan about it. <laughs> so here's an attempt to clarify phonetically-ish. The the Maori uh, have a slightly different pronunciation themselves, for uh, but for most non-Maori foreigners, this is fine. So he gave us like the correct uh, tourist way to say it. Um, and, and it was super helpful because I was able to use that for this interview and I'm just going to go through this. It's, uh, Maori, uh, Tangiwai, Ruapehu, Taranaki, which he said I essentially got correct. So kudos to myself. <laughs> Tungariro, Fana, uh, Fanaehu, Fanaehu, Fanaehu. Fauna he, re- <laughs> he really did it. He spelled it out phonetically, but even that one's still kind of tricky still to hard. Um, So he writes, so there you have it. It's a potentially pointless list of words you may never need to say again. Thanks for the show. It's always great. And I've been an Erios fan since it all kicked off. Have a flippin' sweet day, Rory. And then we also got another email from Catherine Kerr, who uh, essentially wrote in to say, offer her assistance in uh, uh, pronunciations, if we're ever doing any Australian, New Zealand, UK topics. She was like, I'll send you a voice memo. <laughs> so I guess our New Zealand listeners are the nicest. I feel like next time we do an episode, um, you know, about anything down under, we should just have one of them on the episode <laughs> just listening. And every time a word comes up, they can just kind of dub over us. <laughs> You know, like that generically right. robotic voice. Mm, that that's a good cool. plan. Mount that's Rupe, cool who, you know, it's like really. That might give Molly, our editor, a little bit of a headache. But you know what? <laughs> it's worth it. We give, we, we give her plenty of, uh, we, we send her. We give her headaches already. In her, in her editing uh, cave. We leave <laughs> snacks at the door, don't we? Snacks. Yes. She's got unlimited snacks in her editing cave. Okay. Yeah. Um, so seems only fair that yeah. she well, worked twice as hard and (laughs) (laughs) Um, snacks thank you thank you thank you thank you to uh, Janine and thank you to our listeners from New Zealand and all over the world we love to hear from you and I apologize for my pronunciations (sighs) thanks for your patience and that is you're way too kind to send us to to have the patience to walk us through those Rebecca just to make you feel better I feel like if you were to give me a list of like things in Spanish or like terms that mm. were like, you know, relevant to you growing up in Miami, mm-hmm. I would do just as poor a job at pronouncing <laughs> them. So, That's you know, nice. no one's immune to, and even Chris, I'm sure there's some things that he doesn't know how to pronounce. That's probably true. Very few because he's such a brilliant man. Haven't but, uh, come across any yet, but I will definitely <laughs> let you know. Don't worry. We'll point them out, out from now on. Um no, you're right. I, I nail I nail those South American, Central American uh, tragedies. <laughs> you <got> it. <laughs> Anything in Spanish. Um, okay, so thanks again to everyone, and uh, remember to tune in next week. Well, tune in next week. Please remember to do so, and also remember to uh, rate, subscribe, and review our show. It's really important. Clayton, do we have any new reviews recently? Gosh, I'm sure we do. I'm going to have to 
I'll Quickly put you on the them. spot. They put me on that spot. Oh my spot. God. We're vamping. We're vamping. I also Here we want go. to, while you guys vamp, just say thanks to anyone who reached out and uh, wished me uh, uh, a speedy recovery. And I know a lot of people did that on the Alarmist, and I re- it meant a lot. And I really appreciate it. I'm feeling much better. I'm back to basically 100%. Um, you know, I uh, my dance classes I haven't gone back into yet, and I haven't started back on my uh dance classes or cooking classes or my tap my tap dance class yet but um i will be going back soon uh once i'm allowed back indoors but Mm. i just wanted to say thanks to everyone and please make sure to keep us all posted on your upcoming recitals any upcoming recitals oh absolutely uh clayton do you have any (laughs) do we have reviews i do i have a short really sweet one from Bye, B-A-I-I-I-I-I, onward. Uh, says, my new fave, I was getting burnt out on true crime podcasts, so I gave Disasters a try instead, and it's been an anxiety-filled joyride. I love the duo that is Rebecca and Chris, interesting topics, and I enjoy hearing from the experts. And we all know that there's a true following of these true crime podcasts, which induce a lot of anxiety for people, so I'm glad that we are a new niche of anxiety. For our <laughs> yeah, listeners. yeah. I love her uh, describing it as an anxiety-filled joyride. Yeah, it's like a really, yeah. it's a really good but also bad roller coaster ride where you're like, "This is fun, but maybe I'm going to die any second. There are other ways to stress out about things you can't control. There's like lots of stuff you can't control, not just serial killers. Oh like yeah, that's, that's what we're yeah. here for. And and uh, Lahars is our latest one, right? So uh, thank you, thank you, bye. And uh, tune in next week because we are going to be discussing. This has been uh, one of the most anticipated episodes uh, since our premiere. We're going to be discussing the Fire Festival. See you then. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.